you're going to pull your outlines out, um, then you'll have some place to take notes and make sense of as we go through this chapter of God's Word, or two chapters really, that I, I think is such an interesting read. Let's pray as, we, as, we've got, as we've just heard God's Word read. Lord, as you've just spoken to us, we ask now that this morning, through your Spirit, we would see you as you are, that we might come away from hearing you today changed and trusting you, reassured in our faith and challenged maybe to see you as you actually are. Amen. For many of us, um, one of the key questions we face when we're going through the decisions of life is, will it work for me? And whether it's buying a car, choosing clothes, choosing a spouse or choosing a God, we often come back to the question of how will this fit my lifestyle? How will this fit um, my way of living? Uh, The underlying question seems to be not just for us, but for the world around us, does it suit our tastes or preferences? Does it fit the way we want to do things? We're phenomenally pragmatic people, I think. Rarely do we ask what is right or what is true. But nearly every day, we kind of desperately are seeking for whatever works. I was thinking about parenting. <laughs> whatever works, I'm happy to kind of see it. Just go okay. Everyone be together or, or our, our jobs or whatever it is. And I, and I wonder, why are you a Christian? Why do you trust in the God of the Bible? And if you're not a Christian, why are you here checking out Christianity? What is it that you're looking for? What is it that makes you go, yes, I'm in, or I'm curious, or... In a world with so many religions to choose from, in a a world where there are so many worldviews, takes on, on the way we think about life, it helps us to stop for a moment and think, what are we looking for? Is it relevance, excitement, influence, security, happiness, healing... And don't get me wrong, I think Christianity is actually the best solution to every one of those ailments I just listed. But is that why I'm a Christian? Is that why you might be here checking out who Jesus is? Is that what you're looking for? A a way of life that makes, I guess, life a little more comfortable, a little better. A God to stick by me, a God that will make a difference for me. What we're going to see today is that that's the wrong question when it comes to the God of the Bible. The question isn't, who's the best God for me, but who is God and who isn't? As we get into chapter 5, we kind of, we've got to remember the shock of Israel. The shock of Israel of what's just gone on in, in the previous chapters of 1 Samuel. Um, the Israelites had been uh, trying to use their God, Yahweh, as, as like a pagan idol. Basically, they're, they're, they're going into battle and they're like, right, if we're going to win this battle, if we're going to get God to win with us, we're going to take God in that ark, in that kind of box. And we're going to go down and we're going to go into battle with these Philistine enemies. And we're going to treat God like a lucky charm. He will help us to win. He will be by our sides. He'll be our crutch, our, our, our savior in this. He'll help us in everything. They viewed God as a lucky charm that had made life better. The problem is, it didn't. God didn't make life better for these Israelites. Um, They'd been attacked by the Philistines. They took the ark into battle. And have a look what happens in chapter 4, 10 and 11. It's on the screen. 
So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell and the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now that had been promised that something bad would happen to Eli and his family for their rebellion against God. And here we're seeing God's judgment play out. But I want you to feel the shock of this news. Their God had been taken from them. The God who promised to bring them out of Egypt and into a land of milk and honey. The God who stood by them. The God who was Israel's God that defined them against every other nation on the planet had left the building. The Ark of the Covenant, this box that they went down, here's another picture of it. Um, Not that. I think that's New York. There we go. Do you know that the kids talk drawings? Vanessa drew them all. Anyway, phenomenally talented. I was like, I should have used those ones. The Ark of the Covenant was this box made of wood, acacia wood, but about four foot by two foot in, in size. It was covered in gold, made by Moses. Inside the box were the Ten Commandments. The promises of God for how God's people should act and, and, and how God would be their God and how they would respond living God's way since he'd already saved them. There were these cherubims on top and it was said that this ark was the footstool of God. This is where he spoke from. This is where his presence was. was. The ark represented God's presence on earth. And at the end of chapter 4, it's totally devastating that God has left Israel. He's left the promised land and he is now out in the Philistine country. Do you feel the shock? Where is God? Have you ever felt that shock? Where is God? I thought he was here to help me. Where, what is he doing? Where is he? What is going on? This is where Israel are at. God has left. But the account of what happens next is kind of rather comical. Um, Don't let the comical nature of it, though, lessen the blow of what's going on. Let it rather point to, well, the point of the story, which we'll see. In chapter 4, Eli the priest hears about the news of the ark. He then falls off his chair backwards, right? Kind of comic style. At that point, because he's so old and so fat, because he's been eating all the sacrifices that he shouldn't have been eating, he, he falls off the chair and breaks his neck and dies. You're kind of like, whoa, that's pretty full on. Soon after that, we hear the story of his widowed daughter, daughter-in-law. So his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have died in the battle, carrying the ark. God's left. This messenger comes back. Eli dies. Then we hear the news of this, this daughter-in-law. And she goes into labor with the, with the child. And you're thinking, oh, this, could this family line continue? But not before long, she dies. And in her last breath, in her, in her labor, giving birth to this child, this is what she says, Ichbod. You're like, what's that? Uh, really, it's a name. It's the name that she names her child. She calls her child Ichbod. I reckon that's a great name. If you think about having kids down the track and you want to put a name in the list, Ichbod. I think about it when you want to yell at them, Ichbod, get here. It's just, I don't know, it's got something about it, right? Ichbod, what are you doing? Yeah, I was trying to think, you know, how would you say, oh, you're such a good kid, Ichabod. I don't know. How do you do that? It just feels weird. It feels angry. What it means is the glory of God has left. God has left the building. Her final words are God's glory is gone and she names her kid exactly that. 
And really what sums up the situation of Israel at this point is the name of this child. God has left the building. Eli's dead. The priesthood, the whole sacrificial system, the way that you will be able to go before God and have your sins forgiven is gone. Eli's sons are dead. The daughter-in-law dies. The glory of the Lord has left the Israel. And we get to this point with a very clear picture. God does not exist to serve humanity. He won't be used. He won't be pushed and prodded and poked around to serve us. God isn't my homeboy. He's not my guy on, on the side, my wingman, the guy who's kind of helping me out. He won't be used as some sort of cosmic life-enhancing substance to make life better. That's not what he's about. It raises the question, though, at this point, what sort of God is he? Is he in control? I mean, here it looks like he's not. He gets carried off by the enemies. Is any God that can be carried off by his enemies worth following? As I look around at the world, as I try and think through, who, who do I follow? What, what, do I, what decisions do I make? What do I put first? Is this the God I want to follow? But then we see the pride of the enemy. The scene shifts out of the Philistine camp in chapter 5. And the Philistines have, have got the ark of, of God. They're like, we've got Israel's God. You can imagine how proud they are. Look at what we've got. How good are we? They had in their possession the ark of the covenant. The thing that totally took out the kind of Egyptians. The God in a box there. Listen to what they say in, in um, chapter 5 verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. I'll show you quickly a map on the screen. Um, so there, Shiloh, right up the top right, is, is where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. They bring it down to a battle to uh, Ebenezer, where the star is. That's where they lose um, the, the Covenant of God. The, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> From there, um, the Philistines, who they live over this side. This is like Philistine t- territory, and this is Israel over here. Um, they take it into Philistine territory all the way down over to the coast to Ashdod. And that's where we are right now, away from Israel, um, in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was the Philistine god. He was the god of fertility for them. He was the god that they, that they worshipped. And it's this picture of Dagon is there. And in his temple, they bring the god of the Israelites, that pathetic and small god. And they place him at the feet of of Dagon. How small God looks. You ever felt that? Ever been in a situation in life where you look around and you're like, man, is God really in control? Is this the guy I want to follow? How pathetic in some ways, carried by the nation's enemies, tossed around. They place the ark at Dagon's feet. In Dagon's temple, they make a a show of this seemingly pathetic God, God in a box. There's no greater symbol of defeat than that, is there? Think about it. It was clear to everyone, not just which nation had won, but whose God was superior. Dagon had won, so it seemed. 
And at this point, you can just sense the pride and satisfaction of the Philistines, can't you? <laughs> Look at where their God is. The whole way through the story, the narrators brought that out. At every point, it's they, the Philistines, captured the ark. They took, they brought, they placed. The ark of God is in the passive the whole way through. The ark of God's being passed and pushed around like some football at this point. God is a passive aspect of every verb. The God of the Hebrews was seemingly completely under their power and control. And if I'm honest, that's the way I feel sometimes living in this world. Don't you? I get the feeling that God has left the building. That as I look at the events of the world, as I, as I read the newspaper headlines, as I try and chat to friends and neighbors about Jesus, I try to do all I can with my strength and my power to see God's church grow. It often feels like I'm facing an uphill battle. Do you find that? Whether it be godliness, living His way, it seems like everyone else is flourishing and laughing down their noses at me and saying, <laughs> you believe in that antiquated God, do you? You really think Jesus has got something to do with anything? The world scoffs. And I get it. I thought God was on our side. And I look at the rest of the world and they seem to be motoring along, quite happy with their lives, enjoying what's, what's going on, happy with the achievements they're achieving. And they're often good achievements. They're often good lives. It's not like everyone else's life is stuffed. And it makes me go, is it worth it? Is it worth following this God? Or is he really just a figment of my imagination? So often it looks like God's defeated. Like someone else is in control. And the world gloats. But it couldn't be further from the truth. Let me show you why. In verse 3, we hear the beginning of the battle of the gods. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground, before the ark of the Lord. I love this God. I mean, I don't just like him. He's great. You kind of see that everyone else is turning their back on him. And he's like, what's this? <laughs> while Israel are worried about feeling small and insignificant and overthrown and defeated, while they're licking their wounds and feeling sorry for themselves, God brings Dagon to his knees. Dagon begins to worship God. <laughs> Do you see the power of this God? Without the help of anyone else, he brings this powerful country who's subdued Israel and thrown around their God seemingly to his knees. The Philistines are outside partying that night, worshipping their own might and power. God brings them to their knees as well. Dagon worships Yahweh. Since the Philistines captured the ark, the narrator has the whole way through done something that you might not have seen. The whole way through the time that the Philistines had the Ark of God, it was called the Ark of Elohim, which is Hebrew for God, just a type of deity. That's used of God throughout the Bible. It's usually translated the word Lord in lowercase. Every time the Philistines had this Ark, it was called the Ark of the Lord, lowercase. At this moment, the writer switches. With Dagon's face in the dirt, it's called the Ark of Yahweh. God is back. God will act. 
If you see him for who he is, you realize he doesn't need defending. He is the God of the universe. He will defend himself and he will always come out on top. It's one thing to note. We must never let circumstances guide our lives with our Bible shut. Let me tell you what I mean. The the Philistines here, they see that they've got, they've got God in their temple. They've won. They're like, we are more powerful than God. Circumstances point to the fact that we're more powerful than God, that Dagon is better. But things aren't always as they seem. And if we use circumstances to guide us, you know, I failed university, so therefore God wants me to stop. Well, not necessarily. Things aren't always as they seem. We must get our view of guidance with God's word open, with him speaking. God might want us, if we fail university, to persevere, to to keep going. These Philistines thought that they'd won, but it couldn't have been further from the truth. Circumstances are dumb. They don't speak. We can't get guidance from circumstances. They don't tell us which way to go so we can make a decision on them. They're just what, what are, what is. God speaks. And we're going to see that very clearly in a moment. So quickly... The Philistines returned Dagon to his place. Such a funny line. In this battle of the gods, the Philistines are in their corner. They're there and they're like propping up their god. They literally have to take him back to his place. Do you see what the narrator is showing us? Their god is so powerful that their people have to move him. They have to stand him back up like a boxer in a fighting ring. Uh, they have to slap him around the face and say, you're right, are you there? Like, shake his head, wake up. Get out the smelling salts. Come on, Dagon. Stand up. You can do this. It's this kind of pathetic image of those who worship this fake God trying to support him and uphold him. (laughs) Round two begins. The next morning, Yahweh delivers the knockout punch. Have a look at verse four. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord this time. Both his head and the palms of his hands were broken off and laying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. There lies your God, Philistines, headless. You know, the God that you worship who could never think or know. He has no head. He can't see or speak. His head has fallen off. He never could see or speak. What's the use of him having a head? You have a headless God that you worship and the creator of the universe is showing you that. He's also got no arms. (laughs) He can't actually do anything. There's no point in him having arms. Break them off. He can't move. He can't affect. He doesn't uphold anything. You need to prop him up. He needs you to prop him up. How he compares to the God of knowledge. The God who knows all that we've seen throughout 1 Samuel so far. The God who is so different from every other who upholds the universe, who needs no one to defend him. On show here is the utter stupidity of worshipping anything but the true and living God. Of worshipping or living for something other than this God. Idolatry, it's called. If you have to carry your God around, it's likely your God won't ever be able to carry you. If you have to lift up your God then surely he is no God worth worshipping. But so often we worship the things that require our input. 
our reputation, our security, our jobs, things that we need to prop up, cars, happiness, (laughs) the freedom that comes from realizing there is someone who needs no one else to make him great, but he is great himself. That's who I want to worship. You can almost imagine the smile on the narrator's face as he wrote this section, can't you? Of the Israelite narrators, he's pulling this together in verse 5. That's why to this day, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. I love it. This is obviously written after the, after the time and for whatever period that, that was between when this happened and this point on, No one dared even step on the place where Dagon's head fell, where the true and living God, Yahweh, ripped off the head and hands of their fake God. You can imagine the chuckle, the laughter. This is who God is. (laughs) And as the dying mother had screamed in Israel, where is the glory? We see in the enemy's territory now, on his own, Without any outside help, someone was getting the glory. Where is the glory? The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, whose son actually started the Baptist Tabernacle. Um, Thomas, if you ever want to look at the history, Charles Spurgeon's son came out here, started the Baptist Tabernacle in Auckland. Um, But Spurgeon was once asked, how do you defend the Bible? How do you defend God? He replied, with this simple line. He said, very easily, the same way I defend a lion, I simply let it out of its cage. This is the true and living God who needs no defense. We can't aid, we can't help. He doesn't need us to defend him or prop him up. He doesn't need a marketing makeover to make him look a little bit more attractive to the world around us. We don't need to make this God more relevant. He is God. Sure, some people might not like him, but the reality is he's God. Is he your God? Have you viewed him as he is? What happens next couldn't make that point any clearer. Have a look at verse 6 of chapter 5. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod terrorizing and afflicting the people of Ashdod and its territory with tumors. Do do you see the contrast? What did Dagon lose? His hands. Because he couldn't do anything. What happens? The Lord's hand is heavy against these people. You mess with this God, you better watch out. The handless Dagon is contrasted with this heavy hand of God. God can't be controlled. He doesn't exist as a crutch to get by on, nor a weapon to be used. The people of Ashdod then start breaking out in tumors. They think they've got God in their temple with their broken Dagon now, but they're terrorized. And so they work out a connection, and it's precisely the right connection. They actually get this right. This is brilliant. Their defeat was because of the God of Israel. This God was in control. The Israelites had concluded the same thing back a chapter, in in chapter 4, verse 3, that their defeat was the Lord's doing. God was the one who was behind it all. And so these Philistines, now that they get together and they try to work out, what do we do? We've got this God here that is like killing us, literally. So they come up with this brilliant plan. What we'll do is we'll just take it somewhere else. 
We'll take it to another city in, Phil- in Philistine. So they, they go, just have a map for a second. Uh, they go from Ashdod to Gath. Like, yeah, 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 we'll just take it to Gath. And then when it gets to Gath, everyone's like freaking out. Everyone starts breaking out in tumors. There's sickness, there's death, there's panic. You see, they move it as far away as they can from Ashdod, like as close to Israel. They're like, let's just get it back near Israelite territory, but we, we won't give it over yet. We'll just, we'll just get it away. <laughs> and the guys in Gath, panic breaks out. Tumors spread. Um, you get this contrast again. In chapter 4, verse 9, these were the Philistines who said, Stand up and be a man. Fight against this God. Well, these men were now trembling and panicking before Yahweh. They can't handle it. They throw it around like a hot potato. They move the ark to Ekron, which goes up a bit. They're just like, whatever. The Ekronites have heard of it. They're like, no, 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 no. Don't bring that here. We don't want that. We know what's going on. Get, get away. <laughs> you notice this Dagon worshipping nation. They have no care or concern for their own people. They, they just throw it around like, oh, I guess like a nation that's looking to start a nuclear power point, plant. Oh, we love power, but um, not in our city. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it over there in case it goes bad, right? And we, They just don't love the people around them. They're, they're like, ah, oh, stuff this, just get it away from me. All they care about is me. They are so self-focused. They are so dead set aimed at what works for me. The Ekronites, they're like, right, everyone come together. They call all the Philistines, and in in 5 verse 11, they say, send it away. The fear of death has perverted the city. And what we see in contrast to the way that the Philistines act towards one another, God is generous. He actually lets the tumors stop. The death stops when the ark moves that town. It doesn't need to. God could have said, no, you all deserve this. I'm going to kill you all for treating me this way. And it would have been completely within his right to do that. But he doesn't. He's generous. But it does remind us that there is a day coming when you can't ask God to go away. When you can't move him on and say, oh, could you just go over there and not be over here for a while? On that final day when all our actions are laid bare, when everything is before the true and living God and final judgment comes, without anyone to stand in for us, without anyone having offered for us forgiveness, he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You might want him to go away, but the reality is he will send us. This is the God of history. This is the true and living God. And is that not the horror of all horrors? To be sent away forever, under his judgment forever. These nations couldn't even handle it for five minutes. The Philistines think this could just be all bad luck. They're like, what's going on here? Maybe God has done this, but we're still not totally sure. So they devise this plan and it's gone. They have a brilliant plan. It's like a test to work out who's behind it. So chapter 6, they kind of, they weirdly make a, a bunch of gold statues the same as the tumors. All right, we'll, 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 we'll kind of make something to offer to God. And they also make some rats out of gold. Why rats? I think it's because it's like a plague that's spreading. And so they're like, we'll offer God some gold in the shape of the tumors to, to kind of appease him and, and some rats so that the, the plague won't keep spreading. So that they do those, those things, what they're kind of, 
religious officials come up with. And then they say, right, we'll get two cows just to make sure this really is God that have never been yoked. And we'll strap on them the kind of a card and we'll put the Ark of the Covenant on and we'll put the rats and the tumors in and we'll send it off and we'll see what happens. Now, I don't know if you've had much to do with cows. Um, growing up, we had a cow. We lived on kind of five acres. Uh, our cow's name was Whippersnipper. Um, to translate that to Kiwi, it was Weed Eater. Because you know how you have a weed eater and you eat all the it kind of, it's like a spinny thing that goes around your yard and you clean up all the edges, right? No? I just kind of need some, are you with me? Great. So that's what our cow did. We are like, it was, it was awesome. Um, but the cow kind of wasn't very tame. In fact, it was psycho. I remember friends coming over and that would be, my cousin, who was there often, was freaked out by our cow. She was like, it would be up the back paddock. It would be like literally, you know, half a kilometer away. And she's like, it's going to come and chase me. I'm like, yeah, it's a bit crazy at times, but, you know, and one time I remember we got some hay and we tried to tame this, this cow. It had never been done anything with, really, just in, in the yard eating grass. That's what it was, a grass eater. And so we thought, we'll try and see if we can sit on it. So some mates and I are getting hay and we just tried to put a blanket on its back. And it's just like going snorting like some psycho bull. <laughs> These cows on, on the passage that are here have never had anything. They've never been yoked. They've never been trained. Cows take lots to train. And to add to it, these cows here were milk cows, which meant they had calves somewhere penned up. So not only are they untrained, probably psycho whippersnippers like ours, but they've got calves that they want to go back to because they're feeding, they're milking. And so they kind of, the Philistines set up this situation where they're like, just to test whether, whether this really is God. We'll say, we'll put the cart on. If the cows kind of take it, then well, there must be some crazy thing happening. And then we'll head back. Uh, we'll send the cows back to, to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, the total opposite direction from the penned up calves. Now, humanly speaking, there's no way in the world a cow that has not been yoked, that has got milking calves is going to do that. So they're like, there's a good test. So they hitch it all up. And listen, listen to what happens in chapter 6, verse 10. The men did this. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, confined their calves in the pen. Then they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, along with the box containing the gold mice and the images of their tumors, weirdly. Um, the cows went straight up the road to Beth Shemesh, to Israel. They stayed on that one highway, lowing as they went. They never strayed to the right or to the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them, um, into the territory of Beth Shemesh. That's funny, isn't it? In this situation, no one obeys God except the cows. The cows lowing, kind of like, we're just, we want to go that way, but we will obey this God. And in verse 16, and it was also in 12, we see that the rulers, they, they see it all. The Philistine rulers are there watching. They observe what goes on. They've seen what's happened. They get this God. You'd think they'd change, wouldn't you? But they don't. They go back and they don't change their God. It makes me think, how much evidence will it take before people trust the true and living God? I admit sometimes it doesn't seem like he's in control, but as you look throughout history, how much evidence will it take for you to say, he's God because he's God? <laughs> yeah, I think the same thing about Jesus. 66 books of the Bible point to him. 1,500 years of writing point to what would happen. There are over 300 prophecies about um, pre um, predic sorry, prophecies that are pointing to who Jesus is that all are fulfilled. Yet people still prefer to worship dead, dumb, and blind idols. People still prefer to worship 
dead religious leaders, not ones that have risen again. I want to say, make sure the evidence is driving your conclusions. Make sure that wherever you sit, whatever you think about the way you view God or who you think he is, that you're being pushed by the evidence that exists. Show me a better explanation for the the spread of Christianity than the resurrection of Jesus. They haven't found one. It's just that people choose not to believe it or to believe there's something that we haven't come across yet. Well, there's still more judgment to come from this God. He's not finished yet. In verse 19, as these cows come back now from the point of view from the Israelites, there's this excitement in the camp. A 70 of them run up and they kind of look at the Ark of the Covenant. They're, they're excited about it. But again, they don't treat God as God. I wonder whether they're running up thinking, yes, we've got our kind of lucky charm. He's back. Woo, God loves us. We can use him again. Listen to what happens. They come up. They look at the Ark. And 70 of them die because they look inside. Do you get how different this God is? He is no lucky charm. His holiness is uncompromising. You can't have a she'll be right attitude to God. It'll be fine. He'll be right. He'll like me in the end. You can't. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. The man of Beth Shemesh asked, Who's able to stand in the presence of this holy God? This holy Lord God, Yahweh God. And it's the right question. Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? None of us. All it took was one act from Adam and the whole of the human race dies. One act. Do you get how different he is? How uncompromising. One ark, three cities, death. Seventy people look in, treat him wrongly, death. Who can stand in the presence of God? Who is able? Who is good enough? Who is right enough? Not me. And not you. But the point is, one day we will need to stand before this God. How will we stand? Well, at this point, I think it's worth stopping and asking... Where is God's glory? Where do we see it? We began the chapter with Ichabod and the glory leaving Israel. Where is the glory now? Well, a little line we skipped in chapter 5 was this. And I just point to it. And you'll see, I think, the, the heart of what this is about. Chapter 5, verse 12. The men who did not die were afflicted with tumors. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. I don't know if they're calling out to God, but they're crying out in a way not dissimilar from the way the Israelites did in Egypt when the Egyptians were um, punishing them and putting them under hard labor. Do, Do you see, in the midst of all this, the enemies are crying out. The ones who've defiled and defamed God were now crying to heaven, to someone to rescue them. There's a pattern with those who defy God. For a long time, we get away with it. It looks like defying God is feasible, but in the end, it's not. God will be glorified. Whether we come running back to him or whether his judgment is poured out, either way, right will happen. God will be God. He doesn't need Israel. He doesn't need us. 
He's God on his own two feet. If, if he needed us, he wouldn't be worth following. He doesn't need you or me to worship him or to love him. I'm not doing him a favor by coming to church. I'm not doing him a favor by being part of what he's doing. He doesn't need us at all. He could raise up people from stones if he wanted to. He will be glorified with us or without us. With us or in spite of us. He is God. While in this situation, it doesn't seem much like God is glorified. He is. The question isn't, does he work for me? It's, is he God? Is this the true and living God? Because if it is, then he changes everything. When it feels like God's glory is gone, when it feels like his power is overcome, we've got to remember things aren't always as they seem. Imagine standing at the foot of that Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Being one of the people that had heard the, the message of Jesus, that he claimed to be God the Son. That, that he had come and that he was sent from God, that anyone who saw him had seen the Father. And then seeing him pinned by his creation to a wooden cross. Where's the glory now? So easy to ask, isn't it? I think so, much of, so many of the world kind of make that comment, where's the glory now? Your king, pinned to a cross. But as humanity tried to free the world of a man pretending to be God, the true and living God freed humanity from committing the very same crime, pretending to be God. At that moment, God the Son was reconciling us to God. He was dealing with the reality of our sin, of turning our back on God so that we could stand on that last day, if we trusted in Him, forgiven. So that those words, get away from me, I never knew you, don't need to be said of us because of Jesus. I tell you, sometimes it seems like God's glory is nowhere to be seen, but it's smacking us right bang in the middle of the face. Jesus is God's glory. He is God's son. He is God. Will you treat him that way? Our problem is we pretend to be God. We think we should be served by our God or gods. To defy God is as stupid as it sounds. And it's far more stupid than it often looks. But here's the irony. God does serve us. Not because he must or because he gets some kicks, but because it's who he is. Jesus the Son laid down his life so the judgment that we deserve can be exhausted. This is the true and living God. There is no other. He will be glorified. The question is, will it be in spite of you? Or will it be with you? Will you come to him and say, you are my king, you are God, and I will follow you? Which will it be for you? Let's pray. Father, this morning again, we're confronted with the reality of who you are. At the same time of, of feeling that... Um, we are so not worthy of you. We are so thankful for your love that you've shown for us in your Son.
And so we ask, Lord, that we wouldn't look to you as the God who gives us things, but we'd see you as you are, as God, and because of that, would serve you with our lives. We pray, Lord, that Jesus might be the center, that we might not treat you as a mate with a she'll be right attitude, but we would take you seriously. Father, we pray that Jesus would be our all and that we would make him and put him in his rightful place as ruler of our lives and saviour so that we might stand before you. Amen.